The death penalty is legal in the state, but Ohio hasn't executed anyone in six years, and Governor Mike DeWine has shown no indication that carrying out executions is in any way a priority. There have been numerous attempts to abolish the death penalty in the state, with the most recent bills introduced in Columbus in 2023 with bipartisan support. But the controversy over the death penalty is top of mind again because of legislation introduced by Republican lawmakers. Welcome to The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. Today, we'll talk about a bill that would allow the use of nitrogen hypoxia as an execution method. Ohio Attorney General David Yost says it would break the impasse of unavailability of drugs for lethal injection. We'll hear from bill supporter Lou Tobin with the Ohio Prosecuting Attorneys Association and State Senate Minority Leader Nikki Antonio, who's leading the fight to end capital punishment in the state. First, the news. It's the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for joining us on this Thursday. According to December numbers released from the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction, there are currently 118 people on death row. That includes 117 men and one woman. The death penalty is legal in the state, but Ohio hasn't executed anyone since 2018. Something Governor Mike DeWine says is in part due to a shortage of these drugs. He's also questioned whether the death penalty is in fact a deterrent for crime. But some Ohio leaders want to resume executions and begin using nitrogen gas as an alternative execution method. Weeks after Alabama executed Kenneth Smith by means of nitrogen gas. Smith was convicted of a 1988 murder for hire. Alabama ruled it humane. Critics have called it cruel and experimental. House Bill 392 in Ohio would give prisoners an option of either lethal injection or what's called nitrogen hypoxia, essentially suffocation, as their preferred method of execution. But nitrogen would be used if lethal injection is unavailable. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost joined Republican State Representatives Brian Stewart and Phil Plummer, along with Lou Tobin of the Ohio Prosecuting Attorneys Association in a press conference last week, during which Yost called the status quo unacceptable. HB 392 comes amidst the recent introduction of two death penalty abolition bills that have bipartisan support. Senate Bill 101 and 259 are currently pending. That is House Bill 259. One of the bill's sponsors, Senate Minority Leader Nikki Antonio, joins us today. We will start today's show discussing Ohio's division concerning the the, the death penalty in the state. Later in the hour, we'll bring you a conversation on how museums are rethinking how they display and manage human remains. But first, our conversation about the death penalty in Ohio. Joining us, Senate Minority Leader Nikki Antonio is in studio. She represents Ohio's 23rd district, which includes portions of Northeast Ohio. Senator, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. Sarah Donaldson, a reporter producer at the State House News Bureau in Columbus, in Columbus, joins us. Sarah, good to talk to you again. Hey, thanks for having me. And Louis Tobin also joins us. He's the executive director of the Ohio Prosecuting Attorneys Association. Lou, thank you so much for making time. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And if you would like to join the conversation with a question or a thought, call 866-578-0903 or 216-472-7464. 
578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org, or you can tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. Sarah, late last month was when we saw the original statement from Attorney General Yost and others come out. What was the initial reaction to the execution of Kenneth Smith in Alabama? Sure. Um, So I think there was obviously um, reaction on both sides, folks who are for the death penalty and folks who are against the death penalty on a national scale. I mean, this execution made national headlines just because it was the first time in, I believe, the country's known history to execute um, someone on death row with this method. Um, But Attorney General Dave Yost was one in Ohio who said maybe Ohio should look at doing this. And Immediately after the execution in Alabama, officials said that it went as planned, although witnesses have said that they were concerned about how long um, Kenneth Smith kind of writhed before he died. And Lou, you've been vocal about your support of the death penalty. How does the Ohio Prosecuting Attorneys Association view the death penalty as fitting into the criminal and legal landscape for attorneys? Well, we think that Ohio needs to have a death penalty. Um, Some crimes are just so horrific that justice demands more than a life without parole sentence. And if I could give just a couple of examples, the most recent death sentence in Ohio, which was a couple of years ago now, was uh, a guy named Joel Drain who was serving a life sentence already in Warren Correctional Institute in Warren County. He brutally murdered his cellmate while he was already serving a life sentence. So in a situation, you receive the death penalty for that. And in a situation like that, what are you supposed to do? Give give him another life sentence? I mean, there's there's just no justice for the victim in that situation uh, without some without some more accountability. And and I think the way the death penalty is used today, it's almost solely used in cases where there are either multiple homicides or where there are children child victims. Um, and in particularly in the case of multiple homicides. You know, if you've got somebody who's uh, committed one murder, they're facing life without parole for that murder, and they go on to murder a second, third, fourth, or fifth person, those additional victims deserve justice, too. And just, just saying that uh, the person is going to get another life sentence, we, we think just doesn't go far enough. And, and justice just demands more sometimes. Senator Antonio, what are you, your thoughts about where Ohio has stood in terms of a lack of execution over the last six years if this new nitrogen gas alternative would help fulfill the law in the state? Um, why wouldn't it be applied if this is the law of the land? Well, I believe that it's time for the state of Ohio to take the moral, compassionate, pragmatic, and economically prudent step to abolish the death penalty. We've found over the years it's expensive, impractical, unjust, racially biased, and economically biased. It's inhumane. It's erroneous. We make mistakes sometimes. It's failed as a deterrent to crime. And this idea um, that there are different levels of horrific crimes. Absolutely. Some people commit horrible, horrible crimes. However, we heard from victims' families that actually said they have a problem with the idea that the death penalty is said to be reserved for particularly heinous murderers. They say they have a different understanding of this, the implication that other murderers are ordinary and do not merit the death penalty, but some do. 
this was coming from families who have lost victims to murder. They said every murder is a heinous crime, and therefore they believed every crime should be dealt with the same. And this was a group of families that came to testify in support of ending the death penalty because it will end their torture and torment every time there's an appeal. I mean, that is a, a curious point. Uh, I'm curious as to your perspective, Lou, um, when prosecuting attorneys are the voice of the victims in some respects in the legal proceedings, um, aren't all murders kind of equivalent in our eyes as being um, horrible and, and of the same level? Ab- absolutely. All murder is horrific. There, there is no question about that. And, and victims aren't a monolith. Right. And I think prosecutors do have to be sensitive to the wishes of victims. Uh, they have to take into account what the victims want, what the victims are saying about what they want, would like the outcome of the case to be. But going back to the example of where there are multiple murders, you know, sometimes you've got and, and I'm thinking of a case from Cuyahoga County from the last from the last several years. There were there were multiple murder victims. You had multiple sets of family members. One set of family members didn't want the prosecutor to seek the death penalty. Another set of family members did want the prosecutor to seek the death penalty. And ultimately, the prosecutor had to make the decision, look, this, this is a person who had just been paroled. He, he went on to commit multiple murders while he was on parole. It's in the best interest of the state of Ohio and the community of Cuyahoga County and the people of the state of Ohio for me to seek the death penalty. And, and so while prosecutors should listen to victims, at the end of the day, they've got to do what justice demands, and they've got to do what's best for the community. Go ahead, Senator. So um, in Ohio, there are 11 death row exonerees. Since the reinstatement of punishment, the state has executed 56 people, which means for every five execution one person has been exonerated. This is a margin of error that robs innocent people of years of their lives. Missed opportunity outside of incarceration. On average, those folks that are now exonerated spent over 21 years imprisoned only to be later set free. I really believe the focus for us needs to be on uh, making sure I agree the status quo is unacceptable, but the way to make it acceptable is to have life without parole rather than executions um, when there's a capital crime. I have a whole list of uh, false imprisonment, the racial disparities that happen with the death penalty right now. 13% of Ohio's population is African-American, but 55% of the inmates on death row are African-American. There is an incredible disparity going on with how this penalty is being used right now. So, Sarah, can I, can, I resp- can I respond? Yeah, of course, to that? Lou. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, you know, the, these claims that charging decisions or sentencing decisions in Ohio are based on race. There's no legitimate factual basis for that. And this this claim that 13 percent of the population is African American, and so 13 percent of the people in prison should also be Af- African American, is just a faulty comparison. And I, and I want to give an example of this. So in 2022, the FBI statistics of homicides show that nationwide there are about 19,000 homicides. If crime lined up in these neat demographic lines, you'd expect 13% of those homicides to involve black victims. So about 2,500, you would expect about 2,500 victims to have been black. 
almost 10,000 of the 19,000 were black were black victims. And so black people are victimized at a much higher rate too. And and so what you're saying when you, you say that we that people in prison or people on death row should match up in these neat demographic lines, you're saying that a bunch of black victims don't deserve justice too. And we and we think that they do. I didn't say there was they should match up, but I do believe that the disparity speaks for itself. Even one of the architects of the death penalty, Paul Pfeiffer, said that it was a death lottery. And today he is against the death penalty. Sarah, I want to turn to you and talk about kind of the latest uh, when it comes to the death penalty in Ohio. So essentially, there's been a moratorium on um, capital punishment in the state. Uh, the governor has said that there is a lack of the uh, the drugs that you need um, to do lethal injection in the state, but has also said that he questions the efficacy of, of, of capital punishment as a deterrent. So frame for us the the current state of the death penalty in Ohio. I think you got it pretty well right there. I mean, um, you know, in the entirety of Governor Mike DeWine's tenure, there hasn't been an execution that was carried out. You know, we haven't had an execution since July 2018. Um, and he's delayed executions for 26 men, 10 of them more than once. Um, and sp- his spokesperson, Dan Tierney, told me on I want to say it was maybe two weeks ago at this point, right before House Bill 392 was introduced, just that the governor hasn't changed his stance on the issue. Um, He called the use of lethal injection an untenable situation because, as you said, the governor has said that um, drug companies are opposed to use of their drugs in what makes a lethal injection, and they've threatened to pull out of the state altogether. Um, and not provide other drugs if their drugs are found to be used in lethal injection. So I know that, and I'm sure we will touch on it, some people in the state question the validity of that, but that's kind of the governor's position and the state of executions right now. Now, is there feeling that maybe the governor has certain sentiments either way and that, uh, like you said, this uh, inability to acquire these drugs may be just kind of a, you know, a statement that he makes as opposed to uh, true intention? Right now, he's not really saying much about it. When he was asked a few hours after the bill was introduced, he would not comment on the bill. He wouldn't comment on using nitrogen gas. He just said, you know, we've got different bills moving through the legislature that deal with the death penalty. And he's talking about these bills to abolish the death penalty. And then also now House Bill 392. So he's, to my understanding, he's making his cards close to his chest right now. If you'd like to ask a question, participate in our conversation, call 216-578-0903 or 866-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org. We have uh, received a gamut of comments from our listeners. A tweet from Ian says, nitrogen, lethal injection, other gas chambers exist to make us feel good about it. There's no blood, no neck snap. It has nothing to do with how humane it is. It is sick of us to try and dress it up like something it isn't. Adam writes in an email, the death penalty has unequivocally, rhetorically, and empirically proven not to be a deterrent to crime in any way. And email from David says, we don't need the death penalty. It doesn't work. Lou, I'll have you respond to that. As as a prosecutor, um, 
how do you respond to, you know, kind of a, a chorus of our listeners who believe it doesn't work? Well, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, look, pr- prosecutors think we need a death penalty for the reasons that I've outlined. But the, the bill that's been introduced, House Bill 392, to make nitrogen an alternative method of execution is about providing a path to justice for the victims of these crimes. We have a death penalty in Ohio. It's the law of the land. It's our job to see that the law is enforced and that lawfully imposed sentences are carried out. All of this undue delay over the last almost six years now is an injustice for victims. It's unfair to the families of these victims and to their loved ones. It's unfair to the communities where these horrific crimes have occurred. And and this legislation is about creating the legal framework for us to enforce existing law and establish a path to justice for the victims of these crimes. You know, when, when Ohio adopted Marcy's Law, the Marcy's Law Constitutional Amendment in 2017, uh, almost 80 percent of people voted for that. One of the things that's in there is that victims are entitled to proceedings free from unreasonable delay and a prompt conclusion of the case. And I don't think any of us can say that that's what exists with our death penalty today. And we're trying to resolve that and get rid of this undue delay. But nitrogen hypoxia as as this form of execution is even not allowed by the American Veterinary Association to be used on household pets. So I do not believe that this is the solution. Um, Part of the reason why is, of course, because I believe we should end the death penalty. And as far as the public goes, a recent poll came out showing that more than um, almost 60 percent of Ohioans have said they favor life without parole rather than the death penalty in the state of Ohio. Lou, I'll let you respond to that because I know that you have um, a certain perspective on what public opinion is when it comes to carrying out capital punishment in our state. I, I do. And, and I think, you know, the poll that Senator Antonio just cited was commissioned by anti-death penalty groups. I think if that polling is going to be cited to make such an important policy decision, they should release the poll so that we can scrutinize the questions and so that we can scrutinize the methodology. I've never seen a respectable polling organization uh, that's released a poll on the death penalty that showed support anywhere below 50 percent. Gallup does annual polling on the death penalty. Support for the death penalty, according to Gallup, has always been over 50 percent. And there's really interesting studies, at least one study that has gone on that says even Gallup polling is not necessarily accurate because even Gallup's not asking the right question. The death penalty is only applicable to some specific types of murder. And when you do polling on those specific types of murder, so an act of terrorism, multiple murders, the rape and murder of a young child, support for the death penalty is through the roof. It's it's between 70 and 80% of people say that they believe that we should have a death penalty for one of those specific types of crimes. But at the end of the day, look, if Senator Antonio thinks that 60% of Ohioans wanna repeal the death penalty, we suggested that we should put it to a vote, um, put it to a vote of the people. You know, she is, she has supported putting abortion rights before the people and recreational marijuana before the people, but presumably support putting redistricting reform before the people. 
And we think the people should be trusted to vote on capital punishment as well. Well, the people already have a voice, and it's their representatives in the legislature who this is their responsibility. I take that responsibility very seriously, and so do my colleagues. There is a third of the Senate members that are on the Abolish the Death Penalty Bill right now as co-sponsors. My joint sponsor, Steve Huffman, has talked about the moral and religious reasons why he is an advocate for ending the death penalty. There's also legislation in the House with a bipartisan group of legislators. We have a duty and a responsibility to end this legislatively. Um, And, Lou, you know that that is the way forward for this kind of legislation. Sarah, I'd like to ask you, um, what are the rumblings in the State House, um, especially in the recent weeks uh, or recent days, weeks following Smith's execution in Alabama? You know, we're hearing strongly from Lou and from um, Senator Antonio. What have others said? Sure, of course. Um, So the bill itself has two sponsors, Representatives Brian Stewart and Phil Plummer, as you mentioned, um, and it's already got 11 co-sponsors, all of whom are Republican. Um, you know, there's been, obviously, this bill is in really early stages. It's been introduced and assigned to a committee. There haven't been, like, committee debates yet. It hasn't had a vote yet. So folks are focused on a lot of issues at the state house, and this definitely got some talk initially. I know Representative Casey Weinstein, a Democrat, within minutes of this bill, being introduced, tweeted, you know, we should abolish the death penalty, not expand it to allow the government to suffocate and torture people as they're put put to death. So count me as a no. Um, So it's folks who have opinions about the death penalty one way or another are obviously going to take that specific opinion when it comes to this bill. That's what I've seen so far. But I haven't seen any Republicans thus far come out against this bill. Lou, one of our, um, actually, uh, Sarah's colleague, uh, our State House Bureau Chief, Karen Kassler, interviewed the former director of the state's, uh, of, of the state uh, Department of Rehabilitation and Correction, Gary Moore, uh, you know, who had had kind of misgivings or at least a change of heart when it came to um, the, the execution of, 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 of prisoners. And at least in the Alabama case said, you know, it needs to pass a humane threshold for him. And um, what had happened in Alabama had not. And I'm wondering from uh, the Prosecuting Attorneys Association, is there a certain point where certain types of executions are not humane or the application is just not passing a threshold for you? For, for sure, there would be. Uh, you know, we, we don't want to cause people unnecessary pain. We want we want constitutional methods of execution. We want humane methods of execution. And this is what I know about nitrogen hypoxia. Kenneth Smith demanded to be executed in litigation in Alabama by nitrogen hypoxia because he didn't want to be executed through lethal injection. Forty other offenders on death row in Alabama have requested to be executed by nitrogen hypoxia instead of lethal injection. Defense lawyers in ongoing litigation in Ohio over Ohio's lethal injection protocol have said in court filings that they believe nitrogen hypoxia to be a humane and painless method of execution and that is preferable to lethal injection. And I also know that nitrogen hypoxia is used in assisted suicides in Europe. So, yes, we don't want to cause people unnecessary pain. Um, 
to the extent that an execution method does cause some pain, I think that pain pales in comparison to the, to the harm and suffering that everyone on death row has inflicted on their victims. Let's take a call. Um, Todd is calling from Cleveland this morning uh, with a question about the um, monetary costs of capital punishment. Todd, go ahead. Jenny, Sarah, Senator Santonio, and Lou. Is it Santonio or Antonio? It's Antonio, Todd. Okay. So I have two questions and two comments. Question number one is this. For someone that is relatively healthy, what is the cost to the taxpayer for housing a prisoner on death row? Now, I know costs change if people are sickly, either mentally or physically. And in the same question, I mean, in, in addition to that, I'd like to know. Hey, Todd, we are running short on time, so we're going to have to take that one question because I think it brings up a very good point. The state could save between $128 million and $384 million, according to the Ohio Legislative Service Commission, who calculated those numbers. Victims, um, families' victims say that money should better be spent um, providing victim services for the families. You know, Lou, I'm curious because I, I think the number that I read is it's 10 times more expensive to essentially try and house um, a, a death row inmate um, than it is for your regular population. And it does seem that, you know, financially you've got um, death row inmates that are sitting in prison for a long time with lots of appeal processes. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious how you how you see the expense of capital punishment playing out. Yeah, I, I've, I've never seen something that said that it's 10 times more expensive. I, I know it is more expensive. You know, the justice system is not a for-profit business. We're, we're in the business of securing justice for the victims of crime and promoting public safety. Um, you know, the death penalty is more expensive. There's no doubt about it. We, we want to ensure that the death penalty is fair, that it's accurate, and that it provides the due process the defendants deserve. Uh, and, and that involves a long, a lengthier appellate process. But, you know, what really bothers me about the expense argument is that the people who make that argument that we should get rid of the death penalty because it is so expensive are the same people who cause litigation that we don't have to have that drives up the cost of the death penalty. So it's really disingenuous of them to put all these obstacles in the way of a path to justice. And then to point at those obstacles as a reason to not have the death penalty. Uh, a lot of that doesn't just doesn't. You know, we, we want to provide due process, but a, a lot of these, undo, a lot of the undue delay is just not necessary. All right, Sarah, we have run out of time, so I would love to know um, what uh, you will be watching for as we continue um, covering these bills on either side of the death penalty argument. Absolutely. I'm watching for how Speaker Jason Stevens weighs in. Um, the Ohio House GOP is not terribly aligned right now, and I don't want to bring intra-party politics into it, but Stevens makes the decisions about what bills come to the House floor, and the lawmakers who in introduced this bill are not terribly aligned with him right now. So I'd like to thank Sarah Donaldson, reporter for the State House News Bureau, Senate Minority Leader, Nikki Antonio, thanks for coming into the studio. And I'd like to thank Lou Tobin from the Ohio Prosecuting Attorneys Association. Thank you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Time now for a quick break when we return a conversation about how museums continue to shift in how they handle and display human remains. This is The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. We'll be right back.
You're with the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for being with us this hour. Museums throughout the country are grappling with how to handle human remains in their collections. Here in Northeast Ohio, there are about 3,000 skeletonized individuals at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. The people in the Hammond Todd Human Osteological Collection died in Cleveland during the early 20th century. They were then donated for scientific study under state laws about unclaimed bodies. In the 1960s, the collection was moved to the Natural History Museum. Tonight, the museum hosts a talk by anthropologist Dr. Carlina Delacova from the University of South Carolina about the complicated history of human remains as people and not just specimens. Ideastream's Kabir Bhatia spoke with Delacova about her work and the collection in Cleveland. So who were these people and how did this collection even come to be? The collection has an interesting history uh, in the sense that uh, it was founded by T. Wingate Todd and Carl Hammond. Carl Hammond had started it. Uh, he was a professor of anatomy at Western Reserve University before it became Case Western Reserve University. And so when he was promoted to, I think it was dean of the medical school, um, T. Wingate Todd was hired. Uh, he was from Britain. Uh, to take over um, teaching duties um, within the Department of Anatomy, and he continued the collection. And so the collection itself is comprised of individuals uh, who died in Cleveland, Ohio, through the late 30s. And now since then, I know they've moved the collection to the Natural History Museum in the 1960s, and then for the past two years, they've really been trying to catalog the remains and find uh, more links and more about these people. So the wording they used was that they're giving these people back their personhood. So talk about that. The the individuals within these collections over the years, they ceased to be individuals and they sort of became objects and pieces for scientific investigation and, and, and inquiry for creating um, methods um, to advance the discipline in terms of human identification. Um, and uh, the narrative of who these individuals were fell by the wayside. They ceased to be, be individuals and they became literally medical objects for, um, for consumption, if you will. They had become hip bones, they had become toe bones, they had become skulls, they had become ribs, they had become arm bones to do mathematical analyses on, to create an equation to help a researcher um, identify someone uh, in terms of their stature, their height, you know, their their biological sex, all these sorts of things. Um, and so when I started to learn about the collection and doing the research I was doing, um, I started to learn about the individuals in the collection, how they ended up in this collection, where they came from, what their origins were. So then how did people back then end up in a collection like this, and we're talking the era just before World War One until just before World War II. Uh, there was a finite amount of time, according to state law, that you could pick up a body, and a lot of that figures into how this collection came to be. So explain that. If you die in an institution that's funded by the taxpayer, so a charity hospital, um, a um, and during this time period, um, a state hospital. Um, or a mental health institution during this era, like Cleveland State Hospital. The city infirmary, which was essentially a nursing home for the old and indigent poor, or even incarceration. 
if no one claimed your body within 36 hours, then it would be presented to the anatomical board um, of the state or of the city. Um, and it would be sent to what medical schools needed bodies for anatomization or dissection or what funerary homes needed bodies for teaching students. Um, and it would thus be um, used in that manner. So these individuals didn't elect to be anatomized. The state dictated it. And so you found among the 3,000 people in this collection, you actually found a lot in common, unfortunately. There are three narratives that occur in this particular collection uh, in terms of the destitute, the great migration, and institutionalization. A large number of the individuals in these collections, again, were poor. Um, the collection has a large number of African-American individuals um, that was certainly larger than the Black population of Cleveland at the time period. Many of them are from Southern states and they were a part of the great migration to Cleveland during this era. And then institutionalization, a high number of the particularly white ladies um, in the collection were institutionalized in Cleveland State Hospital and the city infirmary. Having worked with this collection for years and knowing the history of it, I was very honored that they asked me to come and speak with them about the collection, um, as well as as well as speak with them about you know moving forward in terms of, you know, how do we proceed ethically? What's the right way? So that's a good point. What is the next step or the ethical way to handle this going forward? I mean, are there laws to protect people or to protect the people that are currently in this collection? That's the that's the interesting thing about I mean, if we're talking legislatively, believe it or not, no. Um, and here's the thing about the U.S. laws uh, when you're dealing with. So, for instance, cultural anthropologists and other doctors that are doing research, folks that are doing clinical research, public health folks that are doing research, sociologists that are doing research, they're working with living peoples. And so because of that, they have to go through what's called an institutional review board for human subjects at their respective institutions for these things to be approved to demonstrate that it is beneficial. I mean, essentially abiding by the initial Nuremberg codes that were set up uh, in terms of this sort of research is going to be beneficial. It's not going to harm the subject. It's not going to, um, you know, it's going to contribute to their welfare or the welfare of society without harm. Um, however, for individuals that are skeletons or the skeletons of individuals, um, because they are not breathing living humans, they are classified according to um, human subjects legislation as specimens. And because they are specimens, they don't fall under the legislative law. So at the moment, there isn't anything in place to protect these individuals. However, that is now changing. Um, there's been calls for AGPRA, an African-American Graves Protection, Repatriation and Protection Act. And that's a bipartisan bill, which was actually introduced by our own Senator Sherrod Brown. But for you, I realize your work started at Indiana University, but what drives you to keep doing this, to keep researching after two decades? You know, my own ancestry and being African-American and, you know, the, the history of experimentation um, on black bodies, but not only black bodies, poor bodies as well, institutionalized bodies. And all of that just culminated in, you know, 
what can I do that's right? And then coming face to face with my own history in these collections. So my my great grandmother raised me the first five years of my life and she was part of the great migration to Chicago to get nursing training. She had been um, a black midwife in the community and a healer and a mother and a number of other things as black women were back then in Alabama and rural, and rural Houston County, Alabama, so Dothan. Um, and uh, it occurred to me in learning the histories of as Monty Cobb called other black folks, the brethren in these collections that had something happened to my great grandmother, she could have been on the anatomist table because they wouldn't have been able to find family members within 32 to 36 hours. And so that's a very real reminder for me every time I sit and write that this could have happened to my granny. That's anthropologist Dr. Carlina de la Cova. She'll be speaking tonight at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History about its collection of 3,000 people whose remains were involuntarily donated to science more than 80 years ago. Time now to take another quick break, but on the other side, another episode of our music podcast, Shuffle. This is The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. We'll be right back. It's The Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks for staying with us this hour. A longtime Akron musician has hundreds of new songs, and he's getting some help from other big names in the music scene to play them live. On this week's Shuffle, Ideastream Public Media's Amanda Rabinowitz talked with Dave Rich and his enablers. Dave Rich has fronted Northeast Ohio rock bands for decades. When his surf rock trio The Beyonders went on hiatus during the pandemic, he learned how to record music in his basement and started writing four albums worth of songs that he released last year. So I decided that anytime I sit down to write something, I'm going to finish it, even if it's something I don't like. And then I also told myself I wasn't going to go to bed until I made something every day. We throw the evidence into a pile and watch it burn. keep the momentum going when you're like you pass 50 songs you pass 60 songs you pass I mean it just seems like at some point you'd run out of the juice the song I'm most excited about is the one that I haven't written yet right also now that I can get decent sounds in my basement it's exciting to write it and it's exciting to finish it and then a few months from now I'll get around to recording it it's like a, somebody gave me a song that I don't remember writing and then recording it is fun because you get to kind of rewrite it while you're doing it So Dave, you wrote and recorded all of these songs on your own, and then you've assembled a band to perform them live as Dave Rich and his enablers. And it's quite an impressive lineup of names that are pretty popular around the music scene. And they're all here with us today. Let's start with Chris Butler, Akron native who's best known for leading the 1980s new wave band, The Waitresses. Dave, talk about how you got Chris involved. Chris is somebody who I have looked up to for a long time 
and uh, have known for a number of years. And so I would send him like very unfinished mixes of songs and be like, hey, what do you think about this? And he was always really encouraging and helpful. And then uh, I complained to him, well, I lost another drummer. And he was like, why doesn't anybody ask me to drum? And I just thought, like, I did not realize that that was an option. Wow. Is that really the story, Chris? You were just like, I'll just, I'll just do it? Playing drums was like uh, my first real instrument. I have always wanted to play drums in a really great rock and roll band. Dave Rich and the Enablers is that really great rock and roll band. It is uh, a dream for me come true. And I wish it would have would have happened maybe 20 years ago when we could, you know, maybe play more in cities or whatever, but it is an absolute joy. Well, we are in your recording space in Akron's Kenmore neighborhood, and you yes. have some pretty incredible setups in here. Is this yeah. where the band kind of congregates? You know what? It guarantees that they'll never fire me because <laughs> I have all the toys at a place to rehearse. You know, I'm like locked in. <laughs> While Dave was talking about all the songs that he was writing, you were just like gesturing. I mean, you seem amazed that he was going at this pace. Oh no, it's wonderful. Uh, I, I love writing songs too, but I'm, I took much longer. And I always thought I was prolific. You know, the torch has passed, this is amazing. And usually Dave Giffels, our bass player, is the earliest to arrive. And uh, more often than not, I'm sitting there with a look of wonder and amazement listening to Dave's latest thing. Base for Dave Rich and his enablers is popular writer and author Dave Giffels. And Dave, you're also a longtime musician. Um, I'm not a musician. <laughs> I'm, I'm a bass player. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I've played music kind of all of my, ever, ever since I was a teenager, in and out. And I was kind of done playing music. And then Dave Rich and I just kind of started to mess around about 10 or 12 years ago just for fun, and that became the May Company. So Dave has twice now revived my uh, seeming retirement from playing in, in bands. On guitar is Friday Mike Wilkinson. And Mike, you've been performing around the scene for years. Uh, I've played with Chris in Half Cleveland. That was wonderful. And played with Dave and Dave in the May Company 10 years ago now, wow. maybe. So I've played with everybody, and now we're back again. pass it back to Dave Rich because Dave I want you to talk a little bit more about bringing your enablers in on this and what's this been like. Chris mentioned earlier that he wishes we could have gotten together like 20 years ago and 20 years ago I think I was fairly insufferable when it came to music because I grew up like wanting to be a musician and wanting to earn a living playing music so badly that I think it made me not fun to be around. 
I value making music now in a way that I don't think I ever have. It was the same thing with Beyonders too, just making something to make it. And if other people like it, that's great. Having these guys in the band who are all incredibly good musicians, it's the best. It's like play together once a week and we play shows sometimes. It should just be people who are friends making music. Like no slight against bands that want to make a living or bands that do make a ton of money. But I think this has been some of those fun because I don't think we have anything to prove. And I, I just think it's it's fun, which is all it really should be. And it just goes to show the term local band is used a lot of times as like a slur. I guess it's just the way that I think music should be, which is like people having fun making something. And hopefully the byproduct of that is people liking it and coming to shows and feeling something or connecting with other people. That's the most important part. Behold the useless quasar Blinding animal Rejoice the chronotopin Blogosphere A crystal clear Won't adhere to you Beyond the sanguine call Echoes through the mental scroll The psychic deal is not for all So how do you get all the practice in and like learn the songs and like make this a thing when you're all very busy people? Uh, my wife is very <laughs> understanding. I would like to add that my wife is very understanding. <laughs> and, but I also, I mean, it's really nice to have somebody writes all the songs, records them really well, and then we just have to learn them. It's not like we get here and we're trying to build up a song from the ether of the abstract. And in a sense, we are a cover band learning all of the recordings of Dave Rich. What's the plan for the year? You're going to put out all of this music. Dave Rich, what's next? Um, so, yeah, four records in 2023, hopefully four or five more in 2024. I mean, why not? I like writing songs, so I might as well do it. We should do it as much as possible. I would really like to, at some point, record with the band. I think we're going to do that at some point. There are some songs that I wish I had had the band to record because the songs sound better in the room with everybody than they did in my basement by myself. A lot more shows. You know, the advantage of age is we're post-bitterness. We're doing it for all the right reasons. That's a little factor that the audience will pick up on. You know, these guys love playing these songs. I will listen a little harder, maybe, because it has that little extra thing. It's not a job. It's not a desperate uh, one step on a very long ladder to someplace else. We're here in the moment having fun. This matters because it's good. Not, not because this matters because you need to buy it. That's a big difference. I love that. We're probably going to break up after this love fest here. <laughs> but as of today, it's top of the pile. Well, thank you guys so much. This has been really fun. We can uh, Maybe we can meet next week when I have my new lineup. <laughs> <laughs> You can find links to Dave Rich and his enablers and follow the podcast at ideastream.org slash shuffle. I'm Amanda Rabinowitz, Idea Stream Public Media. 
Shuffle is your backstage pass to Northeast Ohio's independent music scene produced by Amanda Rabinowitz with help from Brittany Nader. You can hear Shuffle Thursdays right here on The Sound of Ideas. You can also hear every episode of Shuffle by subscribing to the show wherever you get your podcasts. To get the last word on today's topic, send an email to soi at ideastream.org. We're on Twitter, now X at Sound of Ideas, and you can follow me at Jenny Hamill underscore. Regarding our conversation yesterday uh, about Aldo Leopold, the conservationist, Emma in University Heights wrote, over the 20 years I've lived here, thousands of acres have been destroyed and it seems there's nothing we can do about it. I have a beautiful native plant yard, but it is disheartening to think that as much as I do in my own backyard, countless acres of healthy forests are chopped down every year. Policy doesn't support conservation here. And regarding our conversation today about the death penalty in Ohio, Richard from South Euclid says, The death penalty does not act as a deterrent. Its only purpose is retribution, vengeance, not justice. And simply, it costs too much. Now tomorrow on The Sound of Ideas, it's the Friday Reporters Roundtable. This week, Mike McIntyre is joined by Anna Huntsman and Matt Richmond at the Idea Center. And Karen Kassler joins him from the State House. If you missed any portion of the program, find us online or listen to the Sound of Ideas podcast. As we close today, a little more music from Dave Rich and his enablers. We leave you with Fracture in the Frost. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for listening. I will speak with you again on Monday. Just waiting.